What's the signature move that sums up this prosperous and popular era of the NBA? Is it a LeBron James tomahawk dunk? A killer Kyrie Irving crossover? A backbreaking three-pointer from Steph Curry? All good options for sure. But in the age of analytics, the indelible image might just have to be a James Harden trip to the free throw line. There might not be a player with a more data-driven game in sports than the beard, to the delight of Houston fans and the dismay of everyone else. As Daryl Morey's analytics dream come to life, Harden has racked up historic numbers as a Rocket and has finished among the top two in MVP voting four times in five years. His steady diet of free throws, layups, and isolation threes might not be the easiest on the eye, but it's hard to argue with the results. Unless, of course, you want to talk about the playoffs. Unlike LeBron, Kyrie, and Steph, Harden's supernatural stats have never translated to a championship ring. In fact, Harden, and by extension the entire analytical approach of the Houston franchise, is much more memorable for their playoff failures. Pick your poison here. A 12-turnover elimination game loss versus the Warriors in 2015, a 10-point disappearing act in a 39-point loss versus San Antonio to bow out in 2017? Or how about being part of a team 0-for-27 stretch of three-point shooting in a Game 7 defeat to Golden State in 2018? For Harden and the Rockets, the data-driven strategies that served them so well in the regular season have so far wilted in the face of an opponent that has both the time to prepare, as teams in a long playoff series do, and the skills to counter, which the best of the West have so far demonstrated they possess. Will analytics eventually bring home a Larry O'Brien NBA championship trophy? Only time will tell. I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this week's episode, we're putting basketball analytics under the bright lights of the playoffs. Can analytics be a difference maker in the postseason? Or should NBA GMs, coaches, and players resign themselves to the immortal words of Billy Bean, whose analytics-obsessed Oakland A's teams routinely excelled in the regular season, only to fold quickly in October? As Bean said, my stuff don't work in the playoffs. CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. It's almost impossible to argue against the idea that analytics have a place in today's basketball world. At some level, every team in the NBA relies on data and analytics for roster construction, salary negotiation, and in-game strategy. But there's also the case, with Houston being one prime example, of the potential for some legitimate analytics backlash. Should analytics take a backseat in the postseason? where sheer talent, team chemistry, and the data scientist's worst nightmare, intangibles, are more important in the chase for a championship? 
How do you balance a reliance on the numbers with all the pressures and adjustments that come in a seven-game playoff series? These questions are perplexing NBA GMs and coaches everywhere, but we're going to do our best to solve them right here, right now, with our guest, Los Angeles Lakers reporter Mike Trudell. Here he is with Ben. It's good to have you on the show. Professor Shields, it's a pleasure uh, of mine. I must say I'm a fan uh, and a friend of the pod, so it's good to be with you. Can't wait to have a discussion here. Well, thanks for that. I want to take a step back here and look at a macro question of whether analytics work in the playoffs. And I know you and I both are on the same page that there's no question the analytics movement in sports has been positive overall. But I wonder if we can have a conversation about the role of analytics in winning playoff games. And and I want to come to you to explore this question, in part because you've been covering the league a long time. You've been to and analyzed a lot of playoff games. So I figure as as a starting point into this discussion, can can you share in your view what you think the difference between regular season and playoff basketball is? It's a good and interesting question, and it's something I think about a lot because in my role as a reporter, I am not a former NBA player, so I always I feel like I have to support the opinions that I have formed based on just watching the basketball with stats and with analytics. It's just it's like a it's almost a way to justify your opinion when you don't necessarily feel like you need to do it. Uh, if, if you're a former player and, and you're an analyst these days, you know, it's, oh, player X is really good, right? And you don't necessarily need uh, anything beyond that because we trust the pedigree of that player. Now, if I say player X is really good, though, I might have to include because he currently leads the team in net rating and has the highest win shares per 48. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, OK, well, you can't argue with that opinion then, right? <laughs> so it's, it's almost a way to um, to steal what is really just an opinion formed the same way that most people have that opinion, which is by watching. And so that's a, a little inroad to get into your actual question. And before the analytics movement really took hold, and you know, I, I would say, Ben, it's probably been in the last five years that it's really exploded to a different level, and, and maybe beyond that, uh, the last you know three, four, especially as the Warriors kind of grew into prominence and the Houston Rockets, certainly under Daryl Morey. But my first couple of years in the NBA uh, covered the Timberwolves, and those teams were were just bad, and you didn't need <laughs> analytics to explain why. Right? There were 16 wins. Right, right. It was a great time covering the league, though, and, and they certainly battled hard. They were just young and, and injured and inexperienced, and so I go to the, cover the Lakers. In 2008-09 season, fresh off their finals loss to the Celtics, so I'm sure you guys remember that title quite well, with Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. And even at that point yet, we still hadn't really gotten into the analytics phase. It was it was still more about the mid-range, and you know, three-pointers were evolving, but it wasn't something we talked a ton about. And so just watching those games, though, you could tell that in, in, in the playoffs, the reason those teams were really good, and for me, the Lakers actually won the title my first two years covering them in L.A., they, the intensity just picks up exponentially in the postseason. And what that essentially does is it means that not only is the defense uh, playing harder, so that's one, but the rotation is tightened down to just the best players. So in the regular season, when you have 12 players playing for a given team on a certain night, or you know, really at the fewest, it's 10 but usually it's, it's somewhere between 10 and 12. Then 
you see that rotation shrink to really eight or nine. Very few times you see a team where a 10th guy will get in for two to three minutes. What it's doing is it's shrinking the floor. The defense is better. They're more locked in. They know exactly what the other team is going to run in the matchup. So the shots that they're creating are not going to be as easy. And that's where a, a guy like Paul Pierce in 08 comes into play or Kobe Bryant, where we know you're not going to get an open shot. So we need guys that can actually hit tough shots to come in. And they're going to do it at a much, a much less efficient clip, Ben. So that's the larger way to look at it. And if you want one specific example, take Steph Curry. We know he's the best shooter of all time. His career regular season three-point percentage, 43.6, which is insane because he has ridiculous volume of shots, 8.2 attempts per game. In the postseason, though, that number shrinks to about 40.1%. Still fantastic, but significantly less efficient. So the defense is keyed in on Steph. They're often double or triple teaming him. They're sending, instead of a, a the typical guard that we'll have him in the regular season, to use that Lakers example, maybe it's Kobe Bryant in his prime before the Achilles that's going over to guard Steph, like, where you're putting length on him. Everything changes to that extent in the playoffs, and that's the inroads to talk about why analytics uh, are, to me, a bit less effective and impactful in the postseason than they are in the regular season. It's almost like you're questioning whether the data-driven strategies like the three-point shot in the NBA work as effectively in the playoffs as they do in the regular season. So... I want to drill down here and ask the question, why do you have that point of view? And, and do you have specific data to support this claim? Yeah, so I'm not only questioning it, <laughs> I am insisting that it is true. Make your case. Since this is MIT Sloan uh, that we're, we're, where we're doing this out of, I, I had to come prepared uh, with some armor here. Because again, I can't just tell you, it, no, in my opinion, this is what happens because it is true. If you just watch the playoffs, you can tell guys are not getting open shots. They're not getting the corner three, which is, of course, the peak of all analytic nerd basketball minds is to get an open corner three. Uh, you are just not getting that shot as often in the postseason. So I actually looked at some of the top five playoff teams from last year and looked at their regular season makes attempts and percentage from three and the postseason makes attempts and percentage from three. So I'll try to go through this and not bore you with the data. Take the Houston Rockets. In the regular season, they make 16.1 threes. In the postseason, they make 15.6 threes. In the regular season, they attempt 45.1 threes. In the postseason, 42.7. And this is last year's data, by the way. Of these five teams I'm going to give you, they're the only team that makes a, that made a higher percentage of threes last year um, in the postseason than the regular season. So they made 35.7% regular season, 36.6% in the postseason. Uh, let's go to the Milwaukee Bucks. 38.2 attempts regular season, uh, 38.1 in the postseason, but the makes drop from 13.4 to 12.8. Their percentage point uh, went down by about 1.4% in the postseason. So that's a negative and not just attempts, but percentage. Golden State Warriors, this has probably been the best example because we think of this team and what an amazing shooting team they are. And that's one of the reasons why they have been winning titles and at least been to the finals for five straight times. So in the regular season, they took 13 threes. They made, I should say, that was down to 12.2 in the postseason. They took two fewer threes, and they shot about one percentage point fewer in the postseason as well. This statistic goes the same way through Boston and Toronto. Toronto actually is the one exception here in makes, uh, in attempts, where they actually took one more three almost per game in the postseason, and they shot at 34.6% compared to 36.2%. So to sum all of that up, there, there's a net difference between the attempts and the makes and the percentages. And out of the essentially so three is so 15 category points, 
there are only two that were in the positive, and that was Houston's percentage and Toronto's attempts. So that's kind of the data that supports the eye test, which is better defense, more locked in, more used to the matchups, uh, knowing where teams are going to get their shots from. You can't throw the analytics out because analytics offensively say to, to shoot more threes, to take fewer mid-range shots, to take more layups. But guess what? So do the defensive analytics say to take away those things. I'm not saying that analytics aren't important, but it's just that they don't work it quite as well in the postseason. And you ultimately still end up having to find the guy that can make a tough contested shot in the mid-range. And, and that's where basketball has always been true. Once the defense is optimally playing and once everybody understands where they need to be on the court. And that's what we saw in last year's playoffs as well. Okay, so you're basically making the claim that the mid-range jumper, at least in the playoffs, is not obsolete. In fact, it's even more relevant than ever before. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, and it's not necessarily by choice. It's by necessity. So you, you certainly would prefer to have an open layup. That is still the best shot. It's funny. We can say that analytics are telling us that we should run in transition, or you can just say, yeah, that's totally obvious. If you've ever played basketball, the best way to get a point is to get an uncontested layup in transition. And the best way to get an uncontested layup in transition is to play tough defense and to turn the other team over or to rebound the ball and quickly outlet and, and get up before the defense is set. So it's essentially, I think, where we come now is that a lot of the data that we have is basically backing up what we know to be the good, true principles of basketball. Move the basketball, share, um, spread the court, right? All of these things that if you either watch or play, become kind of instinctive to you. And that's, I think, where where the data has become so embraced in the sport now is because it clearly does work. But up to a point, especially when things get tight, it's not that teams want you know to take a contested turnaround shot from the from the elbow or from the wing from Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard. It's that those are the only shots that the defense is really going to allow to be taken. And especially in a tight moment, Another element here is that referees are not going to call fouls as much in the postseason, so you're not going to get bailed out by you know, up-faking somebody, taking a three, or by just throwing your body into traffic in the paint. I'm not glorifying the mid-range jumper as, as this amazing shot, but it's one that's still important, and you still have to have players that are able to execute from that spot. A lot of analysts like, say, Utah or Portland for next year in the postseason. I don't because their best players are on Portland. It's Lillard and McCollum smaller guards on Utah. It's Conley, a junior and Donovan Mitchell, smaller guards. Now Mitchell's a, a bit different because he's explosive. There's a little bit of Dwayne Wade in him, but still I would rather have the Kawhi Leonard and Paul George tandem from the Clippers or LeBron James and Anthony Davis for the Lakers. Like those are the players that we know are going to be able to get those shots and hit those shots in the postseason when things get tight and everything else is equal. I totally understand where you're coming from, that the mid range is not dead by any means, but players are having to take it by necessity. What I also find fascinating about your argument here is that, you know, both the offensive strategies that we've been talking about and defensive strategies are data driven in a lot of ways. You know, the offensive teams shoot more threes and drive more to the hoop, and thus the defense is going to adjust accordingly. So I'm very clear on that. I want to explore this idea a little bit more with you about, well, what do teams do in response, right? So if the offense is getting so good and the defense is getting so good at potentially stopping the highest point per possession shots, then how are teams supposed to compete? And it sounds like you're advancing an argument that it really comes down to having the stars that can make the shots, the difficult shots, 
in crunch time. Is that is that what I'm hearing from you? I mean, that's so that's part of it. The other part is just having players that are really impactful defensively and can influence the game on that end also. So it, it's both ways. It's both sides of the court. And just to use a bit more data, if you want to look at corner three specifically, and I mentioned how that's the most important shot in kind of the analytics movement, I think it's kind of the one that where players can have the highest percentage. It's literally the closest three-point shot. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's it's a quote-unquote easier because the distance from the corner is not as far as it is from the wing and from the top of the key. So uh, in the regular season, right, Houston from the corner attempted 11.4 threes per game. In the postseason, that's down to 8.8. Milwaukee, 8.2 down to 7.8. Golden State, 7.1 down to 6.9. Boston, 9.7. And you know this is a that that's a big point of emphasis for Brad Stevens down to seven point four. So you know two point three fewer corner threes that the Celtics got off in the postseason. And then Toronto is the team again that was a, able to sort of play their style through and through. And I think that's one of the reasons they won the title. They were so complete uh, and they they had the rotation down key. So they only dropped off by point two in the postseason. And so that's that's a mix of a couple of things. But the biggest thing is that point about defenses. Defenses know that the corner three is is emphasized. And in the regular season, Ben, it's just harder to get your players to really execute the plan on a given night. Maybe it's a back-to-back. Maybe you've flown from Boston to Miami. And uh, you know maybe you went to Club Live the night before. Who knows? Whatever the factors are in the regular season are a little different. In the postseason, you know the exact game plan. Like You, you know uh, where Jason Tatum likes to drift when the ball is on the strong side uh, and Jalen Brown has it on the other side. Or if Kyrie Irving, you know uh, that he probably isn't going to pass the ball to the corner in the postseason if there's a chance that he can get the shot off himself, which is another reason why uh, he's out of Boston right now. So there are a lot of factors that come in here, but that's what the defense is able to lock in. The scouting report is the same. There's a day off between games, so you're going to get better execution on both sides. Playoffs favor the defense a little bit because they're able to anticipate where the ball is going to move, and it's just there's no way that the statistics can keep up with the more free-flowing game that we have in the regular season. And that's where the offenses are winning more. Right, right, right. I get that. And the fact that the corner three is not shot as much in the playoffs, how much of that has to do with the game's pace being slowed down a little bit? I assume that in the regular season, for instance, we see the offense is playing at a much faster pace, whereas it seems like with playoff basketball, it's much more about slowing the pace down. Do you see that in your analysis of the difference, or do you have a different perspective on it? My eye test and just watching games a lot over the years would have 100% agree with what you just said. I didn't actually look up the data, which we could probably quite easily, but I, I think it will show the same thing that the percentages that we looked up in the other facets here it's the same concept. And so that's a good point that you make. A lot of times the weaker teams or the teams that know that they don't have as much talent or maybe that are just younger, right? Which is one formula for not being an effective NBA team. If you don't have vets, if you're younger, those are a lot of times the teams that are going to run because what it's doing is it's sort of evening things out to some extent. Think about it like a fight. If there's a boxing match and there's a faster sort of younger fighter who knows that he can't sit and trade blows He's going to dance around. He's going to poke in, try to get a jab here and there. And that's what teams that don't have as much talent are trying to do, especially in the regular season. Then there are other teams, sure, like the Warriors that like to run because that suits their ridiculous level of shooting where it's just difficult to match up with them when they're running and they're transitioning. Oh, wait, Steph Curry is trailing. 
and Clay Thompson is in the other corner. Well, wait, what happened to Iguodala? Oh, he's at the rim. So that kind of stuff um, is is the I'd say the lesser of the reasons why teams run. But the biggest reason is to try to equal things out. And then again, come postseason, not only are some of those teams that are pushing pace that don't have as much talent, not even in the playoffs, but the ones that are used to it are getting slowed down because the other team is just locking in more with their transition defense, which again is another thing that's harder to do in the regular season. Your coach can preach it every game and they do. Trust me, there's never a game where the coaches won't say, we got to get back on defense. We got to get back in transition. But all of the sort of asking for and demanding effort from players is sort of understood that it's going to be difficult for them to get it every night. Playoffs, not the case. In the playoffs, you get everybody's effort. This is fascinating because it it leads to so many questions about this upcoming season. Let's take a look at a team like the Rockets, especially with the addition of Russell Westbrook. Given the fact that the Western Conference is even more challenging than ever before, how does the most analytics-forward team going to fare in this year's Western Conference from your perspective? When that move went down, I was actually at Summer League calling a different game, and it happened in the first minute of the game of the Rockets Summer League team. So I was watching Mike D'Antoni's face, right? He was sitting courtside uh, around the corner for me. And my first thought was kind of in lieu of what you were discussing. Their whole model is based on efficiency and analytics and for a long time, it was just kind of spreading the floor and three-point shooters and pushing pace. And then that changed with James Harden, who is such a specific and unique player and is so incredibly good at isolation play that it made D'Antoni switch his whole style, where they basically have three players that just stand on the three-point line. And then one that sets a screen, and then Harden who plays one-on-one. And it's a really strange way to think about basketball that it would actually work, but it very much did in the regular season. So it's just a fascinating test case because there's some analytics involved in that. And then there's some completely throw out all of the analytics and just go to Rucker park and give the best player the ball and have everybody else get out of his way. And that will give you the best chance to score from a points per possession standpoint, which it did except that it doesn't work as well in the playoffs. They could have won the title if they just found a way to win one more game against Golden State, and, and of course, we remember the game where they missed, what, almost 30 straight threes, right? They were close, and this is where we want to be careful to not say that that style wasn't going to work, but I don't think that it was that sustainable, and the reason why they missed so many threes is because James Harden, in particular, was tired. His legs had been required to do so much to get them to that point, whereas Golden State shares the ball a lot more, and they move the ball a lot more, and so I, that, to me, it's not like, oh, Houston just missed all these threes just because it's because they were A, going against a good defense, and B, the style that they were playing was not as sustainable. So to fast forward now to this year, what's even more complex is that Russell Westbrook is not the kind of player that has success playing off the basketball. And he's the only other guy in the league that has the ball as much as James Harden. These are the guys that led the league in usage rate over the last you know four or five years with LeBron mixed in here and there. And that part is, is really fascinating, too, because if Harden's going to keep the ball like he did last year, Westbrook is not a three-point shooter. So he can't really space the floor, but does his ridiculous athleticism and speed and tenacity, does that kind of make up for it just in ways we can't really predict that aren't a part of efficiency and analytics? Like, does his drive and his crazy competitive spirit, does that make up for it in other ways with his rebounding or his ability in transition? 
I don't know. It, it's really a, a team that I'm actually looking forward to watching the most probably next year to see how it fits. And if Westbrook has the ball more, that to me actually might work a little better because Harden is a devastating catch and shoot player. If you give him the ball with a defense trying to run back to him, which is how he played in Oklahoma City, because Durant and Westbrook had the ball more often and Harden would be on the weak side and he would just kill teams once he actually received the ball later in the shot clock. So I, I think that they'll find a way to make it work and make it interesting in Houston, even though it might look like it's a weird fit. There's something that tells me that they're going to find a way to figure it out next year. What is your perspective on how LeBron, AD, and the rest of the pieces will work together for the season? To me, LeBron James and Anthony Davis are clearly the best duo uh, in the NBA. They fit the best. They kind of make up for what each other does best in the way that makes the most sense. Whereas, again, Westbrook and Harden, I'm not quite sure like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George is a great defensive duo. How do they work offensively? Because both of them, they're both used to a bit of isolation play. You know, they're not necessarily going to run a ton of screen roll with each other. But with LeBron and Anthony Davis, LeBron gets the ball, top of the key. Davis sets a screen. If he rolls to the rim, it's either a dunk or LeBron gets an open jumper or a lane to the hoop himself. Or Davis pops and creates space for LeBron to go to the hoop. Like, there's no good way to guard that, Ben. There's just not. And there's no defensive concept that can account for LeBron James and Anthony Davis playing together because LeBron's, for as amazing as he is as a scorer, passing, I think, is his best skill. And Anthony Davis is probably the most devastating finisher, especially for a big man, at least, in the NBA. So those things really work. And then defensively, Davis can cover in the regular season for LeBron. If I had my way, uh, you almost have to have LeBron focusing his effort, ramping up towards the playoffs. So, you know, when he's played... 50,000 plus career minutes combined regular season and, and postseason. You have to have that be balanced out at what his age is in the league. But Davis is 26 and can still give you that night to night defensive impact. So, what they did with assembling the roster was put role players around them, you know, guys that have specific skill sets like Quinn Cook and Troy Daniels are three point shooters. Danny Green is a three and D wing, and in, in fact, one of the best ones in the league. Kyle Kuzma is going to be that third score, the guy that cuts to the hoop, that gets up and down in transition, that's not afraid to shoot. You know, Alex Caruso is a glue guy that draws charges and can make some plays. Like JaVale McGee is a screen roll, dive to the rim big, who blocks shots. So, so all of these guys have clear, defined roles that are supposed to fit around those two stars. And even though they have never played before, it's natural to think how they will play together. And, and that to me is important. Like Houston, aside from Westbrook, those guys have all played together now for three, four years. You know, Tucker and Capella and Eric Gordon, they know how to play together. And so that is an advantage in the NBA. But I think the Lakers can make up for not having the advantage of playing together by the fact that there are some clearly defined roles around two stars that are motivated to show everybody else that they are still elite and that both of them are still all NBA first team type players. So um, the DeMarcus Cousins injury was definitely a loss. That hurts. That was a nice compliment to them as a stretch a big on offense and somebody who can throw the ball into to dominate so that was really unfortunate uh, but I, I do think it just means a little bit more small ball a bit more Kyle Kuzma a bit more Danny Green and uh, maybe even a bit more Anthony Davis playing in that role so uh, I, I'm excited to see what the Lakers do this year and they're you know whether you talk about just analytics or the eye test it's a team that makes sense with how it's been constructed to me so Lots to be excited about as we head into the start of the season. And I think one of my big takeaways from our discussion thus far is that 
especially with these new team configurations, the first month of the season is going to be fascinating because each of the teams is going to be running, for lack of a better term, experiments to see what types of plays, what types of strategies, what types of lineups are going to produce the most efficient basketball. And so that's where we kind of get back to this whole importance of, of analytics question that it's ultimately going to help give coaches and their staff more information on how to put winning teams on the floor. But to bring us back full circle, I want to end our conversation with a discussion around the balance of analytics insights and the eye test or the experience-based strategies. We've been talking about both of those elements to developing strategies throughout the show. You've been around the league for a long time now. Uh, how do you see teams, specifically coaches and players, balancing the data with the experience to create winning strategies? For a while, there was almost kind of a conduit that a lot of teams had between the analytics folks. And, and so each team would hire right a couple of guys to look into the data and, and try to see if it could apply. But how was that data going to get translated to the court? They had to have somebody on the coaching staff that was able to speak that language and carry that into practice and carry it into games. And then it depended if you had some veteran players that just like to play how they play. I, a good example of this lately, I think, has been Carmelo Anthony, somebody who was trying to change his game with uh, with OKC and Houston wanted him to play versus this, you know his style, which is really much more back down a couple dribbles and take a turnaround two-point jumper, right? That is seen as archaic now, at least in the regular season. But I think that in the last couple of years, Ben, the culture around basketball and understanding data and where shots are from, everything has been caught up now. You don't really have to have somebody that necessarily explains it in the same way because it's just sort of known now. And, and that to me is interesting. And, and part of that is because of media members that, that now the media understand what are good shots? What are bad shots? There have been some journalists, I think, that have helped this along. I think Zach Lowe is a good example of somebody who was doing the deep dive, kind of breaking down plays and that type of reporter. Some of the analysts that are sideline reporters that are able to bring elements of that into the game. And so it's become uh, NBA Twitter, right, just writ large, I think, is, is really locked in on that. So it's now pretty pervasive. And I think that in the NBA that it's, it's understood and most of the team's are operating with the same type of information. You know, I don't know if what the next thing is. I don't know if there's a team. I, I can't think of one, like something that nobody else is doing. Like maybe some team decides to go giant in their lineup. Uh, like if you have LeBron James as the quote unquote point guard, and then you have somebody that's six, seven, that can guard point guards. And so you can have that player compliment. And then you play, this was one before DeMarcus Cousins got injured. You think, okay, well, man, yeah, sure. Play Cousins, Davis, LeBron, you know, Kyle Kuzma, and Danny Green in like that type of giant lineup, I guess, would be the only other maybe counter push to this. But I'm not sure if that would work. It depends on the matchup. Again, I don't think anybody's going to get snuck up on, I guess, is my point. Basketball to me is somewhere in the middle of the other sports where the MLB, like Major League Baseball, is so clearly defined by statistics that it's almost boring to discuss it. If you think a player is, oh, that guy's awesome. Well, his war is is blank. So it's it's Bill Simmons is always talking about this, right? It's the discussion about baseball is not as fun anymore because you feel like you're going to get fact checked immediately um, by the statistics. And the NFL is somewhere as part of that frame too. And I know we, we probably don't have time to get into all that, but it, like the simple point of being 
in the playoffs, do things return to kind of the running game and defense and the, the Patriots and, and Rams in the Super Bowl? It was 13 to three. This is a Rams team that averaged 34 points per game in the regular season. So is there something that in football where the data and how to play and the offenses and guys throwing bombs and that that still gets down to the pure thing with defense like we have in basketball? So it's really, to me, fascinating to look across all sports. But basketball specifically, I think, is, is found a pretty good happy medium where I can use analytics and stats to back up my opinions, but really we understand the game enough. Now we know these players, we know their faces and we know what they do with their games that we can have that discussion, whether you're an an advanced stat nerd or you're a jock uh, to use the two stereotypes. There's a way to me that those things are melding. Michael Trudell, this has been a blast. Thank you for helping us put a finer point on the role of analytics in winning playoff games I hope the Lakers have a very fun and successful season. Appreciate you spending some time with us. You're the best. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I am a fan and a friend of the pod and everything that you're doing at MIT. Uh, keep it up. Can't wait to see what else you're going to do in the future there. This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. If you enjoy CounterPoints, please take a moment to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts. CounterPoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Menashe. And our maven of marketing is Desiree Barry. We also want to express our deep gratitude to Jeanette Ramos, Richard Marks, Michael Barrett, Deborah Gallagher, Lauren Rosano, Ali McDonald, Jenny Martin, Judy White, and Sean Brown, whose efforts make this show possible.